Welcome back to the SSI Executive Conversations podcast. Today, Darwin hosts Robert Wolfhart, president of Cadence Regulatory and an expert in regulatory affairs with 30 years of experience. During their conversation, they talk about the cost of being transactional with the regulatory pathway, deciding between contract and permanent regulatory consulting, and what differences can be found between permanent and consulting positions. What are yeah. some examples of, of how being transactional in understanding the pathway and laying out your plan can, can hurt a company from your experience? Oh, boy. Well, um, I, have, I have worked uh, with some clients who have uh, very frankly stated, done some minimal research, or maybe they just heard from a colleague that all you need to do is send in a 510k application. A couple months later, you're on the market, and they're convinced that that's the pathway. They insist on going forward that way. Well, we can do that. Um, and as a consultant, I will do that, but I'm also ethically bound to offer the counsel that we need to look into this first and make sure, confirm that this pathway is sound. Uh, it will save your company lots of money and headaches uh, to make sure you've got it right. I've seen um, FTA um, reject 510k applications. I, they typically don't just reject it. They will call you up and say, look, we're about to reject it. Here's your opportunity to withdraw it wow. uh, because you've gone way down the wrong pathway on this. Uh, and frankly, they couldn't care less if you spent all kinds of time and money. That's not going to convince them. They are, in their minds, protectors of the public health. Your finances are your problem as a company. Um, they may come back to you and say uh, some major aspect of the design or the testing is flawed. You're going to have to start over. You're gonna, it's going to take six months, nine months, who knows how long. Um, or you didn't choose the correct regulatory pathway in the first place. I've seen this. Then you have to start all over. It sets you back months in timing and thousands of dollars in cost. And don't, don't get to that point where you wish you had taken a little bit more time to plan this out in advance. Um, you were in a hurry to get to market. We're all in a hurry to get to market. That's everybody's goal. But if you go too fast and you haven't thought through the process, there is a substantial risk that somewhere along the way you're going to trip. And it may not be devastating. It could be a series of little missteps, but it can be devastating. Mm -hmm. It's just not worth the risk. Plan it out in advance. So when I was preparing for my presentation at, at RAPS in Montreal last year, I was on that point of 510Ks that are rejected the first time, it, it's, I found data that showed 30% of them are, don't even see a person at the FDA. They're rejected before they actually get to a live person, which yeah. I thought was amazing. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that uh, Submissions may be put together by somebody who's well-meaning and they're sort of following line by line. Here's what I think it needs, but they don't really understand the entire process and the nuances and everything. And FTA says, no, we're not even going to read your application because it's incomplete. It was put together in a way that doesn't even make logical sense to us. It mm -hmm. doesn't follow 
power checklist of the things that have to be in it, whatever else, and it gets kicked back to you. A lot of them that happens to. And if you and, look at the data that they share for the reasons for the for the submissions being kicked back, they all come back to not wrong talent because the person didn't understand the pathway, uh, cutting corners. Yep. Uh, one of them is you know clinical data in inconsistently in the submission where it needs to be in more than one location, sending it to the wrong center. It, mm -hmm. It's pretty phenomenal when you look at that, how important yep. the emotional intelligence and the skill set and experience of the regulatory professional on your team is, is, is vital. Yep. I, I have to share this story with you real quick because it made me think of this. Like in 2000, and I think it was 2019, we had a meeting with a uh, top 40 medical device company in a certain category, which, you know, I won't, I won't say who it is, but it, it's a pretty big company. And yeah. we met with them. They had a leadership position in regulatory that had been open a year, and they hadn't been able to fill it yet. And after talking with them, they had some submissions that were was really important that were going to be going through the process. And in looking at what they wanted to pay, they wanted to pay essentially, and this was before autonomy was as uh, this was up in the, in the Northeast, but they wanted to pay it really at the market or a little bit below it. Person had to sit on site five days a week. It was pretty, you know, what they wanted was pretty strict. And mm -hmm. I asked them, I'm like, okay, how, like from a, you, you talk about these, this has been open a year. You've talked about these products that you're trying to go through the pathway to get on the market have you already implemented any aspects of your commercial strategy relative to that? And they kind of looked at me, they had already hired nine sales reps for these products that weren't even on the market yet. And so I asked them a couple of additional questions. And then I said, are you open? Can I share a perspective? They said, okay. I said, look at how long this has been open and look at, I would consider higher instead of worrying about every aspect of, of, of what you want, maybe thinking about even paying over the market, focusing on the skill and the emotional intelligence and getting the right talent. Because if yes. you get the wrong person or this stays open another three to six months, because you can't find somebody that matches everything that you want, that'll also sit in the seat five days a week. Yes. What is the opportunity cost? And if there's a mistake there, what's going to happen when you're nine sales reps can't make their bonuses because they can't even sell the product that they were brought on. What does that mean relevant to wasted resources? And, uh, and they looked at me and they were like, we never thought of, we've never thought about it that way before, but I would sit here and say that, you know, I'd love your thoughts on that, but that's something people should be thinking about. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, it's, there's, we don't know the circumstances. There could be a variety of causes for that. It's easy right. to think, well, maybe um, there's miscommunication in the C-suite. The, the, the person that oversees sales and marketing over here was all gung-ho, couldn't wait, went out and hired nine people to say, okay, right. get ready to hit the the ground running with this. Yeah, amazing I don't know. I don't know all those details. I just know the, the higher level. Exactly. Um, but um but absolutely had it, it just seems like that's just money being wasted where had they hired somebody had they looked at the market for regulatory professionals and thought through okay 
let's do a cost benefit analysis here real quick. What is it going to cost us? We want to hire at market or a little lower versus if we are a little bit more flexible in some of those areas, but we get them in much quicker mm-hmm. and they have more experience and they put together a strong regulatory strategy. We may get this product to market much faster. Um, it sounds like in this situation, they wasted a year. They could have been on the market, you know, well, last year. Mil- you're talking millions of dollars. and Exactly. Exactly. You know, one of my slides that wraps that really got people's attention when I presented was in terms of supply and demand and regulatory professionals are inundated with recruiters when it comes comes to opportunities. We did a survey through IU. Now, this was in uh, last February, March for a presentation that I did at LSI. And obviously, these aren't all vice president level roles, but uh, there were 900 people that responded and stated that they were reached out to for new opportunities one to two times a day or four to five times a week. So Mm -hmm. now that's across all positions. So uh, obviously if you're, you know, senior director, vice president, as you go up the ladder, there's less positions, but still the the point is in terms of supply and demand, people are inundated with opportunities. And one of the slides I shared showed that in the United States for medical device, for example, for every 15.9, roles, there were about, there were less than uh, six people, you know, available looking for opportunities. And I would say 50% of the people on LinkedIn who are in regulatory, who have their hands up that they're open, they don't even respond. You know, they have it up, maybe they don't know it's up. So my point is posting and praying for these type of positions is usually not the best strategy. It's right. So, (laughs) right. Absolutely. And, and the company, excuse me, a company is always going to have that decision, whether to large or small company. Do we hire full-time perm for this position, a regulatory mm-hmm. expert? Are we there yet? Or are, is, if it's a small company, they've got to decide, are we there yet? Are we ready to bring on full-time staff to, to handle the regulatory workload? Or are we going to keep them busy for the next four or six months and then we're not going to have anything in regulatory for nine months, and then maybe another project will come along. Those are very valid questions. Um, larger companies often have a large regulatory department or a mid-sized one uh, to handle those, um, and that's where in in the middle there or somewhere, especially with the smaller companies, is where consultants often fit in. Um, if you have a project. You need just advice. You need one regulatory submission, and then you're not going to have anything for a year and a half. Um, maybe a consultant makes sense for you rather than hiring a full-time perm. Uh, so, you know, and it's not just dollars and cents, but that's that's one of the major factors that, that have to be considered. That I'm I'm glad you brought that up. That was actually part of my next question. That I was going to ask you on on determining that. So I think yeah. so. I'm gonna I'm gonna. You know, switch. Uh, I'm going to switch directions here a little bit, and you know, maybe sure. piggyback off that a little bit. But one of the things I always talk about is when you hire, again, not being transactional. You certainly shouldn't be transactional in terms of what you put into it and making sure you're hiring for culture versus just technical skill. But I always say that looking at the position, what you need the person to do in the position, it shouldn't just be about what you think you need them to do. How could that position change in the next six to twenty-four months? Because when it comes to annual voluntary turnover, it's 25% across all companies, all industries. 
that means a fourth year talent's walking out every year. And so it's kind of a buyer beware in terms of what you want them to come in and do. People have a tendency to leave. The immediate hiring manager is always either negatively or positively Im impacting. Uh, mm -hmm. Employee appreciation programs, employees doing tasks or skills that they didn't sign up for for too long a period of time or they're not growing or they leave because they just uh, feel that there's not a pathway for them to grow. There's no, there's no clear understanding there. Mm -hmm. So when you look at, when you look at hiring the consultant versus hiring the, the, the full-time position, you kind of already answered, gave some insight into that. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to switch to, sure. I, I find that regulatory affairs are not typically very open to talent at all. It, it, you know, when I first started, almost nine years ago, I'd work on a regulatory position. I would have hiring managers that not only did you have to have 510k submission experience as, as an author, or you had to have led the project versus worked on a couple sections like substantial equivalence or clinical, whatever it is, right. compatibility. But you also had to have done it in the product category, which is, I mean, when it comes to supply and demand, that's just almost how long is it going to take you to fill your position? So, right. so, you know, we do work in medical affairs, clinical affairs, started the company in quality. We've done every position in quality. And so when you look at regulatory and how important emotional intelligence is, understanding of the pathway versus maybe being an SME in every section of the submission. Yep. I, I always talk about it like cakes and pies or running a bakery. Do you want the regulatory person to be an expert in making every product in the bakery, or do you want them to lead the stakeholders, know what to do if OSHA walks in and, and, yes. and manage the process? So how, what are your thoughts? Cause you also see a lot of people in regulatory that hit a ceiling and then they go into consulting. And yeah. so companies pay a lot of fees for consultings. If they had better pathways for not just the vertical, but the horizontal and, yeah. and career ladders, you could, yeah fill roles with people that understand it from a cross-functional standpoint that might enjoy it and mm -hmm. you might save money on consulting fees. So what are your, what are your two cents there? Yeah, absolutely. No, th th there's actually a couple of topics in there and they all kind of blend together. Um, it's important to, when you're looking for uh, regulatory professionals and you're trying to decide, you know, okay, what, what exactly are we going to put on this job description? We want to bring somebody in. They've got to have this, that, and the other. Um, I would recommend that what's important is somebody that understands the system, um, that understands how the FDA works. They may not know exactly where that reg is, but they know how to find it. Um, you know, I've seen this in, in various scenarios where somebody's applying for a job and they've got, you know, 10 years of experience and they've submitted all kinds of uh, 510Ks and great things like that, and they get down to a final question. Yeah, but we're working on a project that's related to ophthalmology. How much ophthalmology experience do you have? And the poor soul says, well, I've been in uh, cardiovascular most of my career, and uh, I can't claim a whole lot in ophthalmology, and they, you know, X them off the page. And yet that expert knows the regs, knows the system, Mm -hmm. understand they could pick up ophthalmology pretty quick 
Right. Uh, in a regulatory perspective, I'm not saying being an ophthalmologist, I'm saying understanding right. regulations and how to get to market. Um, that's where, find somebody that understands that side of it, that's much more critical than we're an orthopedic company, we only will hire somebody that's done hips and knees for 10 years or more, you know, I mean, I, I get why that's important, but you could be losing out on some really good talent there. Um, another area that you were talking about, and this is very important because I've worked for, I've done consulting, I've done uh, many years working for companies of all different sizes. Yes, it's true. Regulatory pathways often, there aren't too many CEOs that were former regulatory people. Right. Um, there are a few out there, but not too many of them. Um, regulatory professionals often will climb a ladder within a company and they hit a ceiling. They've got some kind of impressive title. They've got a couple of raises and bonuses along the way, but then they kind of top out and they're sitting in that chair and they've been there in the company for six, eight years. And they realize, you know what? I'm never going to go anywhere here. It's going to look like this six or eight years from now. And unless you just love your job and maybe they do, but if they're, if they're hungering for more knowledge, for more breadth, for more uh, experiences, the company's got to find ways to uh, offer that to them. Now I get it. Not all companies have breadth of portfolio, but uh, some companies that I've seen offer two tracks for people in that uh, situation. One is the managerial track. The other is the technical track. Um, the managerial track is you become assistant manager. If you're interested in managing people, which is, as everybody knows, a bit different from actually writing <laughs> submissions. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you're not interested, not especially good at, I'm, I'm speaking bluntly, um, managing people, and you know that you're just a technical person, um, that's your strong strong suit, then follow the, the technical path. And you can uh, go in a way that helps uh, you know, chart courses for regulatory pathways, for example, um, be a mentor to other people, uh, get better and better and, and, and breadth of portfolio if your company has it. If you're working for a big orthopedic company, uh, maybe you can step from the hip and knee side of things into the spine side of things or the small joint side of things and get some experience over there. Um, they're looking for new challenges. They're looking for uh, something different where they can learn new skill sets. Mm -hmm. If they don't, you're right. They may look outside the company. You don't want to lose them. They're good talent. Well, again, you know, one of the recent surveys showed that 70 percent, it's like 71 percent of patients that were considered at risk relevant to annual voluntary turnover leave or look, start looking to leave because they don't have a pathway. They don't see any pathway. And so the more pigeonholed you are, the more your ability to grow is determined on somebody in front of you leaving or the company growing. So you can go into another product category and, and the company grows uh, in, in, in that fashion. So, yeah. but there are a lot of there, I've seen so much talent in quality and clinical 
in regulatory that, that, that some have engineering backgrounds, some don't, but there's, there's just so many scenarios where there could be some cross pollination there. And you already have somebody that believes in the mission, believes in the vision and yes. personal why matches it. So your ability to mitigate the risk of cost of a mishire and give people a pathway. I mean, I think career ladders are just so important for, for companies that implement them successfully. Yeah, um, that's absolutely true. And there's, and, and that's one of the reasons why, um, employees jump ship from full-time perm and go into consulting in the regulatory world because they're sitting in their orthopedic company and their breadth, no matter how broad it is, it's going to be from this side of the cubicle to that side of the cubicle in orthopedics. And they're looking over there at that consultant. And one day the consultant's doing ophthalmology. The next day he's doing cardiovascular. Next day he's doing medical imaging. Yes. Learning all kinds of new things, high risk, low risk, US, EU, you know, wow, I want to do that. That's that's and, and that's make, challenging. And that's make it more and make it more money and work in 10 less hours. So, exactly, exactly right. Exactly right. So I think that companies being more open to talent, having having a, a better focus on training and you know, annual employee appreciation programs along with career ladders, they could yep. save money on consulting fees by having uh, possibly looking at things internally a little bit differently. But as we finish up here, I'd love to get your thoughts on your consulting experience versus PERM for those you know listeners that are thinking about that from a career path standpoint. What should they be thinking about in terms of PERM versus venturing into consulting at some point? Sure, happy to. Um, and just, just a word of background. So I have done uh, consulting and full-time PERM and I've done overlap. I've done both at the same time, which I don't necessarily advise and unless you're a workaholic. Um, there are, and, and I will say up front, there are pros and cons to both of them. Um, some of the things that you mentioned are absolutely true. Um, full-time PERM has pros. It has stability. It has, uh, you, you are full-time PERM. Now, PERM, we all know, is a very nebulous word. Nobody promised you a permanent position. <laughs> right. Um, but a lot like of layoffs this last year. So hopefully, exactly. you know, and uh, multiple, you know, a lot of big companies doing layoffs. So, right. Exactly. But it's, it's perm in the sense that you're likely to have a, if you're, if your bosses have made good decisions and hiring and strategy and everything like that, you're likely to have your job for a while. Um, that's good. That's good to know. You've got healthcare benefits you probably have a 401k. You've got some good benefits like that. Um, uh, and, and the stability of knowing what's going to happen when you go into work each day. You know, you know the people around you, you know the projects you're going to be working on. You might be working on the same project for several years, especially if it's a high-risk device. Um, with consulting, it is a lot more, you, you never know what is going to happen almost day to day. You could get a phone call and something really exciting comes along and you can't wait to get started on that project. And you sign a deal with a client and away you go and you're just loving life. Or it could get strangely quiet for a while and you don't and the phone does not ring. <laughs> and that is part of the natural ups and downs of the cycle. Um, mm -hmm. Nobody is handing you things like uh, medical insurance, 401ks, all of that. You've got to do all that yourself. Right. Do you make more money consulting? 
Yes, you do. But you also spend a lot of money on things like that. You're good. If you want health insurance, I'd like to believe most of us do. Um, you're going to have to find it yourself. You've got to go out and figure out what's the best plan. If you're going to start your own consulting firm, do you want to hire people? Do you want to grow the company? Or are you going to do it yourself? If you hire people, you become a manager. You've, you're, you're not only doing regulatory, you're building and running a company. So it diversifies. So, you know, there's, there's pros and cons. Um, we talked about some of the others. Of course, the diversification, I think, is one of the great pros of consulting. So many different things. You never know what the next project is going to be. Um, and that's, that's limited in, uh, uh, in the full-time perm position. But don't go into consulting assuming that five years from now you can retire rich. Um, it, it's not that easy. Uh, it, you put a lot of work into making that company successful. You've got to continue to sell yourself your, your product and your product is your consulting services. Where you, whether you work for a company, you work for yourself, you've got to know your personal why. Strongly, you really have to understand your own risk tolerance because if you're going to go into consulting, you have to have an entrepreneurial mindset and you have to understand really all aspects of, of running a business because I know people that have incredible skill and have wanted to do it, but then in terms of marketing themselves and business development and getting those opportunities, that wasn't something they enjoyed or were comfortable with. And obviously you have to be relationships. You have to be marketing yourself. Uh, as you said, the fish aren't always jumping in the boat. You've got to be able right, to go exactly. out and find the fish. So I just going to say as a, as, a, as a consultant, I mean, um, you know, when you're, when you're full-time firm, somebody down the hall in, in accounting is going to figure out the tax implications of buying that new printer. Right. You've got to do it yourself as a consultant. You've got to figure all those things out that are outside your comfort zone. You didn't have to do that before. It's a whole different war, world, whole, yeah, whole different ballgame. It is. Hey, thank you so much for your time. It's great to see you. And I, I know you're living it up in Barcelona. So, um, <laughs> And uh, congratulations again to you and your new bride. Thank you so much for giving, giving uh, our following your time. I greatly appreciate it. You bet. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's great to see you again, Darwin. Appreciate awesome. being on the on the the the, uh, the call with you. Awesome. Have a great day. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode of the SSI Executive Conversations podcast. To learn more about Cadence Regulatory or get in contact with Robert check out the links below. If you'd like to see more of the podcast, make sure to follow us on LinkedIn, YouTube, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit us online at SureigSolutions.com to learn more about SSI and receive a complimentary consultation.